A recent and very important hearing at the Supreme Court of Canada reveals how Canadian Crown prosecutors would like to essentially legalize an obstruction of justice when it comes to sexual assault criminal trials. The hearing occurred on January 16th, 2019, and the link to the full webcast is below. I highly recommend you watch it. There's also a write-up from November 2018 on the implications of the case by thecourt.ca, and I've linked to that below in the description bar as well. I'm hesitant to read it to you here because a publication ban on the case has since been established. Since this is an ongoing case, I risk possible criminal prosecution if I reveal identifying information, including the lawyers arguing in this case. So I'm not going to discuss this case itself, and I've blurred all faces which I believe will be sufficient to respect the ban. This is a video you want to keep watching if you want to understand how the supreme law of the land considers eroding the rule of law or saving it by weighing the constitutional rights of the innocent accused against the rights of alleged sex crime victims. But first, a quick obligatory 30-second pause for the cause. Hey there! Do you find this content valuable, informative, and thought-provoking? If you do, there are links in the description bar for multiple ways to support my work. Donations help to sustain the production of content that informs and inspires viewers like you. Support what you value by contributing one-time or monthly recurring. Buy merchandise to take a stand and start a new conversation. And last but not least, subscribe to this channel, like, comment, and share to help this channel grow. You may have heard a lot of noise about a recently passed law with Bill C-51 in regards to sex crime cases and strengthening the rape shield laws. I reviewed the new law relating to admitting evidence in sexual assault cases in a previous live stream, which I link to here. The concern behind this video is that it's becoming easier to prosecute and convict false or wrongful accusations relating to relationship breakups where a false or wrongful accusation is often made in the context of the accuser getting revenge on an ex-partner. The rape shield laws are becoming so complicated with so many new rules specific only to sex assault cases and specific to preventing an innocent accused person from being able to tell his or her side of the story, provide context, and properly defend themselves. The legal arguments I'm about to highlight in this video are a shocking display of our feminist crown prosecutors asking the Supreme Court of Canada to legalize a generalization that full context of a relationship between two people is not necessary and should be prohibited in order to fairly assess the credibility of an accused person and the alleged victim. The Crown says the court could charge the jury and could simply say, you've heard no evidence about whether or not there was a prior sexual relationship between the accused and the complainant. That is because it is not relevant to your determinations here today. In the following clips, you will hear a lot of legalese, but I will be pausing to translate into hopefully easier to understand layman terms. Uh, justices, uh, you've heard a lot today about whether or not uh, sexual activity should be admitted. I'm going to spend my brief time addressing how to control this evidence when in fact, in the very exceptional case, it is admitted. She will be discussing how to control evidence of a prior sexual relationship between the accused and the accuser when it is admitted. 
be it a marriage, friends with benefits, or prostitution, etc. Ontario is proposing three measures to limit the expansion of this evidence at trial. In each case, this evidence has to be strictly delineated at the front end. If you can't point to a legitimate purpose, it can't go in, period. You need to be able to explain that. A legitimate purpose is anything other than something that might create the impression that the accuser likely consented to the alleged sexual assault or is likely lying about the alleged assault. This is referred to also as the twin myths and is already, unfortunately, codified in law and has been for about 30 years. Two, it has to be controlled during the course of the trial. And finally, it has to be coupled with instructions that a jury can actually understand. Jury instructions are what the judge will charge a jury with before the jury goes off to deliberate their decision in the case after hearing all of the evidence. That is, if the jury actually hears all of the evidence. So the first point, building on Barton, we, we made submissions before you saying that all sexual, that all sexual activity, and now I'm saying all sexual relationship activity, must be vetted in advance. And that includes evidence led by the Crown. Of course, the purpose to this is to set out the exact parameters of the evidence, the proposed legitimate uses, and to trigger defense counsel, hopefully, to consider if a formal application is required. Do they need more details? Um, should they bring a further application? So that's the basic control at the front end. The application she's referring to is called the Section 276, or 276, which is the basis for this entire hearing. The Section 276 application is in place to govern admissible evidence related to the sexual history of a complainant. What this Crown is proposing is adding a control to the 276 to include a requirement for application when the defense wants to testify to the context of his prior relationship status with the complainant. It's also important I say to control the manner that this evidence is introduced, the manner in which it's introduced as the trial unfolds. This case is a prime example, unfortunately not a unique example, of what can go wrong if this evidence is not tightly controlled throughout the course of the trial. We are proposing that this uh, sort of broad relationship evidence, if it does go in, uh, should either re be reduced to an agreed statement of fact or more practically and more likely, I would say, counsel should just be permitted to lead the evidence, to lead their witnesses through this evidence, strictly adhering to whatever description the trial judge lays out in his or her ruling. So now, she's describing a hypothetical scenario in which a judge holds a Section 276 application hearing to admit prior sexual relationship evidence and suggests how the judge should instruct the lawyers to lead their witnesses' testimony. The hope being, of course, that if you leave this evidence in the hands of an officer of the court, it's less likely to be expanded. This is, I say, going to reduce inadvertent disclosure of further details and further incidents. And the bigger problem with that, of course, is it opens the door. It opens the door to sexual activity and sexual evidence that was originally prohibited by 276. But suddenly it becomes relevant uh, because an issue has, or because the Crown or the complainant has in fact put a fact in issue. And she says that if you give full control of the testimony to the lawyers, then the witnesses, 
the accused or the accuser will not be able to accidentally leak a very important piece of contextual evidence to a jury. I say leading witnesses through this evidence also reduces the opportunity for the accused to expand on this evidence, to repeat this evidence, to place undue um, reliance on it, and from characterizing it in a way, perhaps friends with benefits or more coarse language, referring to evidence that could otherwise be described in a rather ununique way. Our final proposal deals with the back end, the charge itself. And we say that the charge has to be amplified. We have our, uh, we've, we, our proposals are in our factum in one draft charge. We say that the basic twin myth prohibition is not enough. The basic twin myth prohibition is not enough, she says. Again, the twin myths refer to allowing testimony or evidence that might create an impression that the accuser is either lying or gave consent to the sexual encounter at issue. In my view, these twin myths are already myths by implying that an accuser is always telling the truth. So this crown is suggesting that defendants who have a prior sexual relationship history with their accuser needs tighter controls to prevent a jury from knowing any context that might shine a light on the elephant in the room, that the accuser is likely lying. It can't undo the assumptions we know. This court has said that there is an inherent negative impact that flows from this evidence. And so you can't just say to them, you can't engage in this twin myth reasoning. You need to tell the jury, you need to link it to the very assumptions that we're trying to make them not engage in. Assumptions we're trying to make them not engage in, she says. Well, if that isn't the epitome of authoritarian language, I don't know what is. The common and wrong assumptions, and specifically in cases of relationship evidence, the common and the wrong assumptions in the content that arise and that we think about when we look at relationships. They have to focus on wrong-headed notions of advanced consent, habitual consent, implied consent, and you have to unequivocally tell the jury that none of these are applicable and none of them can be used to assess consent. And then circle back to the proper definition of consent. Silence, passivity, previous consent are not enough. The latter has in fact been codified under the new C-51 provisions. We've included those uh, in our condensed book. We give guidance to juries along these lines. I say they'll better understand the prohibition and they'll more fairly assess sexual relationship evidence. And I'd like to make just a final point on post-defense sexual activity. I acknowledge that this case before you only involves pre-offense activity, but whatever principles emerge from this case about, about relationship evidence in 276, I say must apply to all sexual relationship evidence, whether it occurs before or after the offense. And there she goes, throwing in a, while we're at it, Let's apply all of these controls to any sexual relationship that also occurs between the alleged offense and the trial itself. Now, having said all of that, let's revisit the first clip you heard at the beginning of this video. It's the scenario that the Supreme Court of Canada could potentially decide is a good idea and impose on Canadian courts for sex crime cases. The context of a man and a woman's relationship could become completely irrelevant.
the Crown says the court could charge the jury and could simply say, you've heard no evidence about whether or not there was a prior sexual relationship between the accused and the complainant. That is because it is not relevant to your determinations here today. And here we have one of the Supreme Court justices who is not convinced that adding relationship context to a trial is any different than adding sexual activity history, which is already prohibited. What's the difference between an ongoing relationship and prior sexual activity? Let's be logical, if you don't mind. Can there be any other reason to want to include evidence of prior sexual activity except to show that it goes to whether or not she believe, he believed that she was consenting. And if that's the case, isn't that what the whole Seaboyer-Dara analysis was all about? And to bring it back by using the term context, it seems to me, reads out what this was all about in the first place, that each act is separate. Whether it happened before, right. how often it happened before, is not supposed to be relevant. Here's a reaction by another one of the Supreme Court justices to the idea of preventing relationship context and that it's obviously going to neuter the accused person's right to a full defense. As I understand it really comes down to the full answer in defense as I'm seeing it. Maybe you can help me if there's more. But primarily it's to put this statement that he makes to her, a comment that he says he makes to her. She doesn't even remember, I don't think, but she doesn't say he didn't. No, didn't. But, but leaving that aside, yes. um, if that's not put into context as they're walking down the stairs or something, um, A, the jury is going to think this is implausible, probably, but B, and even worse, that this guy is not a very nice person. He's really... This predatory. Is really predatory, and, and, and so to kind of remove that from the picture, um, that may, the bang may be worth the buck. I don't know. I'm just trying to understand how this fits into full answer and offense. In this case, on the basis to a certain extent that we're talking about an existing relationship, it's not something that happened two years ago or whatever. Um, right. This is an existing relationship and it is required uh, in part for full answer and defense, but I would have thought too, in part, to give the jury an accurate picture. I think your point is when a jury is assessing credibility, they don't just look at what's said about the main event. They look at all the surrounding facts, this being one of them, this statement as they're going down the stairs. And if you take that out of any context, yes. okay, the jury says, what? How can we believe this guy on that? And if we can't believe him on that, and if we feel that he's lying to us about this statement, you know, that carries over into what happened in the main event. I mean, that's just basic. Yes. And, and often clients are told, you know, you're going to get killed on the peripheral stuff, not on the main event. You've got to tell the truth all the way. That's because the jury isn't going to just look at what you say about the main event. They're going to look at all the surrounding evidence, so it's basic. We will have to wait to find out which side will win in this case, and it could be weeks or months before they release their decision. In the meantime, I'll leave you with this picture of the state of our criminal justice system and let you decide for yourself if any innocent accused person is guaranteed to be safe from a wrongful conviction.